Merkel Media. I guess it's time to go back in time. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Time is but a stubborn illusion. I have a lot of memories of the past. People are time traveling within themselves. Time travel is possible. This was all circulating around the base that a giant had been killed, but no one was supposed to talk about it. I saw three long bony fingers reach up underneath the door, curl up to grab it, and then disappear. When he came over to me, dude, he slithered over to me. And this giant comes out of the cave, and they're all frozen. And he starts running and firing at this giant. But the giant moves. He's got a spear in one hand, and he's running really fast. And spears Dan and holds him up like this. Somebody else shoot him in the face, shoot him in the face. They basically decapitate him. Got closer, got closer, got closer. When he got about 15 yards away from me, I raised that 12 gauge, and I blow his head off. I feel something pulling at my leg, and I look over, and there are two small gray entities pulling at me, and they're literally, I'm getting pulled off the bed. I reach my hand into this bush, and I touch air, couldn't breathe, and I couldn't move, because I know I'm seeing a monster. Okay, I'll reload it! Welcome to the show, everybody. You're listening to The Confessionals. I am your host, Tony Merkel, and thank you for being here. If you've had an encounter or story you'd like to share on the show, go ahead and shoot me an email. My email address is theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com. That's theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com. Or go to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com, hit the connection section, and you can reach me that way as well. Either way works for me, just get a hold of me. Now, let's move on to this week's show. We have Susan Lindauer coming on, who's an ex-CIA 9-11 whistleblower. She goes into great detail about what was going on within our government, within the Iraqi government, leading up to that fateful day. Months before 9-11 even happened, she talks about all the details. And then after 9-11 happened, when she became outspoken, she was the second American to ever be arrested underneath the Patriot Act. She was held in prison without a trial. And she talks about that on tonight's show. Let's get to it. Okay, today we have a great guest coming on. We have Susan Lindauer. Susan, how are you? I'm great. This is uh, we're having a little bit of rain in Washington, but the creative chaos is firing all on all guns in Washington. It's it's been dead waters for eight years under Obama, and now. The seas are the hurricane forces are, are unleashed. 
I, I tell you, uh, uh, CIA Director John Brennan got it right when he called this a crossfire hurricane. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I can't imagine living down there in uh, D.C. I, I'm up here in Philadelphia area and stuff. And uh, I, it, that town is, you know, a world of its own. So, <laughs> yeah, they don't call it La La Land for nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it is fun. I have to tell you, this is the most exciting period of time that I've lived in since in, in 15 years that we've seen since Iraq. This really is uh, Iraq turned out to be a devastating thing, as you'll find out from my story. But it is it is a very exciting time to be in Washington, and we really are fighting for the future of our country. So, you know, on both sides, all you know, there's no more stagnation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you have a very interesting story, and I was really excited to have you uh, confirmed to come on with me today because, uh, you know, 9-11 is right around the corner, and your story directly involves that whole situation. And uh, now you were uh, working alongside of the CIA back when this whole thing happened. And I just want to introduce you to my audience and let you kind of share your story as to what happened with you. But before we get into that, I wanted to give you the chance to let the audience know where they can find you on a regular basis. So if you could just let them know, you know, where they can find you as far as your radio show and uh, maybe even like social media. Okay, great. Um, I have a radio show on Truth Frequency Radio on Sundays from 11 to 1 a.m. 1 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Pacific Time. So, I, uh, I. I, I love I, I do a lot of radio and I love talking to interesting people. This is an exciting time. We've got really good people with lots of different ideas. And my thing is not to toe any ideological line, but to expose, hopefully, enhanced discussions with lots of good, good people, good conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so anybody who is interested in that, go ahead and check that out. Uh, it's definitely highly recommend it. Uh, but Susan, if you could just start walking us into uh, what happened back in that time of 2001. Yeah, I was the, from 1995 to 2003, I was the chief CIA and defense intelligence asset covering the Iraq embassy and the Libyan embassy at the United Nations. Both of these nations, Iraq and Libya, were pariahs, hostile isolated very much Libya was very much like North Korea um, terribly fr threatened and frightened of any outside force when I started my contacts with Libya Gaddafi had not traveled outside Libya in 20 years because he was so frightened and it was a very big deal when he I actually triggered this and there's some things I'm not allowed to tell you but I did trigger it uh, uh, Gaddafi went to visit first the President Ben Ali of Tunisia and he was so frightened he crossed it was something that I told him something that I had informed him about and he literally crossed over the border into Libya by 300 yards 
300 meters. And the CIA was like, oh, my God, he's doing something. (laughs) (laughs) And they calculated exactly how many feet he crossed into the other country, into Tunisia, and how many bodyguards he had. And then there was a one-on-one meeting with President Ben Ali. And then immediately he crossed the border and scampered back into Libya as fast as he could. And then three weeks later, he went to the other side of the border of Libya, with Libya's border with Egypt. And he crossed over the border. Again, the CIA was holding its breath. And they were really mad at me. This is the first time I ever heard the expression extreme prejudice because I had done something that they didn't understand. They didn't like it. They didn't want me to do it. I did not have permission. They were big on telling me, you did not have permission to do this. And if it goes badly, you're going to be dead. Wow. <laughs> We're gonna go. You want to know what extreme prejudice is? We're going to do that to you. You better. And that's when I first heard of it, heard about it. And so I crossed it. This was 1995. And, 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 and or actually my contacts with Libya started in May of 1995, and this was now January of 1996. So again, Gaddafi crossed right over the border into Egypt, stayed ex- about three hours, and he came out of a meeting with Hosni Mubarak holding hands, and Mubarak looked like he was about to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> Mubarak looked like, like, oh, I'm in so much trouble. The United States is going to kill me for this. But, but, but Gaddafi was grinning like a fox. He had, you know, and we had done something very good. We, I, I demanded that, that Gaddafi had to have one ally in the world who he could speak through, and it would have to be Mubarak. There had to be a fellow Arab who who would also be threatened by terrorism and violence, and that he needed to have one, I'll tell you this one key, He it, Libya required an ally who would be th- afraid of Libya's bad behavior. So if, if Libya's engaged in bad behavior, it risked killing off, literally assassinating Mubarak. And therefore, to keep the friend alive, Gaddafi and Libya would have to change all of their behaviors to protect their friend. And now, when I first, it makes actually a lot of sense. But when I first told the CIA this, they're like, no. <laughs> No, no, no. We like the status quo. We don't want Gaddafi to have any friends. And so that's where we came. That's where the first time I ever heard extreme prejudice. Because they're like, if this goes wrong, you are a dead lady. Wow. And, and literally, um, literally at four o'clock in the morning, one morning, in, in when all this was beginning, I woke up to hear trash cans. I, I had, okay, okay, no, no. Okay. I, I woke up to hear somebody banging through my trash cans and crashing the, the trash can lids together. And I looked out and there were like a do- half a dozen sedans with cars and everybody was lo- unloading boxes and going loudly, as loud as possible so that they would, wanted to know I, they were waking me up. They wanted me to know what they were doing. And they took over, they commandeered the houses Two houses across the street, two houses on the on the same block of mine right next to me, and they all moved in and they all camped out watching me. 
And this was my first experience with, you know, heavy surveillance. You better be right or you're a dead lady. Wow. <laughs> and and I've never told anybody this story before. Um, but I I after they moved into the houses next in on my four houses on my block, four of them. Jeez. Um yeah, it was intense. And I was 29 or 30 years old, 30 years old. Uh, yeah, 30, 30 years old. And so I called up my, my I, I told, I went to my CIA handler. He said, Susan, Susan, Susan. He said, you can do anything, but you've got to tell me first. <laughs> he said, because I had gone to the Egyptian embassy and I had told them something. I said, I have a message for Hosni Mubarak. I want you to tell him that I came today. And and I had given advance warning to the nineteen about the nineteen ninety-three World Trade Center attack. So my message to Mubarak was, I came to see you. He'll know what that means. And the diplomat was like, What why 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 will he know you? And I said, Oh, he'll know who I am. He'll know exactly who I am. And and the diplomat said first said to me, uh, that's ridiculous. You, who, who are you? Who are you? I've never heard of you. So you ask your ambassador, Amr Musa, who later would become the foreign minister of Egypt and then the head of the Arab League. I said, you tell Amr Musa that I came here today and that I had that he'll know that I have a message from Mubarak and I'm activating it. You owe me something and I'm here to collect. And he was like, oh, I, that, that sounds like a threat to me. So apparently, I. but when I got home, he, the diplomat had spoken to Amr Musa, who was then the ambassador in, in Washington. And he said, oh, Miss Susie. He left a voicemail message for me. He said, Miss Susie. Oh, I spoke to the ambassador. He knows who you are. I am so sorry. Uh, there are times when the people, the, the smaller people do not know everything. And I apologize if I was rude to you. My ambassador has immediately telephoned the foreign minister in Cairo. The foreign minister is waiting to take your message directly to President Hosni Mubarak, our grateful great leader. Please tell us exactly what you want. <laughs> wow. And that was the night. That the cars moved in, that, that that across immediately. And then immediately what happened was Hosni Mubarak, someone, as my CIA handler put it, someone in the president's office, Hosni Mubarak, called someone at the White House. <laughs> that would be President Clinton. And said, what the heck is she doing? <laughs> <laughs> And then President Clinton, and he said, someone in the White House called the head of the CIA, and he called me, and we want to know what the heck you think you're doing here, Susie. And he said, you know, you can do anything, but you have to tell us first. <laughs> and I said, but I didn't tell you because I knew you'd be really mad. And he said, oh, God, what is it? And then I told him and he's like, oh, they're not going to like this at all. So I did it. I won. But I won. I just did it. I was just like, I, I don't care. I'm just going to do it. Surprise. Wow. <laughs> and and oh, but 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 they didn't. But they um. In, in your show, I, I hope you'll – I hope – I'd like to ask you to play a song if you can. Oh, sure. Okay. It is called Bullet with Butterfly Wings by Smashed Pumpkins. Okay. 
in the middle of this, you know, they, they, they ratcheted up the stress and uh, against me pretty quickly. And I began playing very loud music in my house. I was like going to counter psyop them. They tried to psyop me. So I counter psyop them by playing. And I went to my CIA handler and I said, hey, I'm playing music on HFS radio because I know these are all Lawrence Welk guys. They just listen to this elevator music. And now they're meeting the new guy, the new crowd at the CIA. And we do things a little bit differently. So that night... When I, I was listening to HMS radio, the radio host comes on and he said, everybody, everybody, don't be afraid. This is a, we have a, a dedication to the lady who wants to go to Egypt from the guys next door. And he said, nobody has to be afraid. Nobody has to be afraid. Wow. Of course, he was terrified. And I was like, oh. The song they dedicated to me was Bullet with Butterfly Wings by Smashing by smashing, Smash Pumpkins. Wow. Smashing Pumpkins, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So if you – and it starts, the world is a vampire. Dong, 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 yeah. dong. Yeah, you play that play that opening for me. The world is a vampire. Destroyers hold you up to the flame, and what do I want? I want you. What do I want for my pain? I want change. And what do I got? Things stay the same. You know, it's it's, it's actually, a common story. It's a common story, but it's it's uh it's it's it was the dedication. So this is the first time I ever heard about. Uh, I, I sorry, I haven't ever told that story on the radio. No, before. it's fine. That's great. So, <laughs> you're first, but. I, I I had a reputation for being a a a bad girl. The thing is, if you if you if you're like a bad boy at the CIA, then you're like you know, you're, you're you go farther. You you the, the CIA thrives on creative chaos. Okay. Okay. It really does, and it thrives on and and we changed. I, ch- I literally changed everything. Changed the entire. Uh, equation of power with Libya and Egypt and pulled Libya out of its shell. We then spent the next five years working with Libya behind the scenes, off the radar, getting Libya to abandon it, to deport the terrorists, to stop providing sanctuaries for terrorists because they would threaten Hosni Mubarak. Okay, the terrorists. We they he's like, well, if it's going to hurt Washington, then I don't care. But if it would hurt Hosni Mubarak. Then it was a very big deal. Libya began to invest in um, – put all of its money into Egypt's economic development, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, into tourism, hotel construction, building up jobs and creating economic opportunities for the very poorest working people of Egypt who had nothing. Libya, Egypt did not have any oil. So Libya got to, in, Libya was big on sharing its oil wealth with its own people, but it also ended up sharing with Egypt and therefore helped equalize 
I mean, Egypt is still very poor, but 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 uh, but he helped uh, Tunisia and and Egypt as well. So it, it was actually very positive. And um, the other thing was is that we worked on to them on them to stop that because Egypt worked with them to stop the proliferation of chemical weapons and nuclear weapons because of the fear that the jihad, the Islamic jihadists would get hold of the terror of the bombs. And so again, we had a situation where uh, Libya was just off the radar. Nobody talked about it. It went from being, you know, high profile. These are terrorists. They're dangerous. They're violent to having absolute silence. And while all this deep work was done. And I have to tell you that when, when, uh, when there, it was, it was, Irate, furiously irate. When after all, we we persuaded Libya that to drop its guard because we we persuaded Gaddafi uh, in 1996 that the world was not going to be a hostile place. That he could have friends if he would behave in a neighborly fashion. Hosni Mubarak would help him make friends, and this was very. And Libya wanted. It's like it's like what you're going to see with North Korea. North Korea is following exactly the same pattern as Libya right now. I can see it. North Korea, having been isolated and hostile and paranoid, now sees South Korea as a as as you know. It's a life. It's a lifeline. It's a savior, and Washington. In D.C., Kim Kim Jong Un has said that you know Trump is is he respects Trump, he understands Trump, he, he he's 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 showing his reverence to President Trump, and and a lot of you you know a lot of the, the audience you some of you may not like Trump, but this was very well played. Trump is doing this exactly right because he's showing I'm tough and strong, and you better respect me, but. At the same time, I'm going to be merciful. We're going to help South North Korea rebuild its relations. We're going to denuclearize. We're going to have a safer neighborhood. All of the tensions are going to ratchet down. And it's exact what's happening between North and South Korea with reaching out to President Kim in South Korea. This is exactly what we did with Libya and Mubarak. It's exactly. And it's going to succeed. It's going to succeed. Well, we all can hope so. You know what I mean? Like, if you're American, you want the best for this country. So whatever the leadership's doing, you hope they understand things and, you know, make are making the right decisions. So yeah, I, yeah that's right. That's right. I, I, but- I'm the kind of person where I, I don't get, I, I am not, I, I never try rooting against my leadership, even if I don't agree with my leadership, because they are the ones making decisions. So whatever decision they make, I'm behind because I just, I want what's best for the country. So I just hope that whatever they're deciding is the right decision. You hope it succeeds. Sure. Um, you hope it succeeds, and that's what we hope. You know, that's that. I've I've worked with with you know every president from Clinton, eight years of Clinton, eight years of Bush, eight years of Obama, and now and now Trump. Uh, so I've, this is my fourth president, and I always try to help every one of them. And sometimes they take it well, and sometimes, uh, unfortunately, under George Bush, they took it very badly. Yes. Well. <laughs> Let's let's kind of get into that whole situation as to how things developed for you. And I think it started really in early 2001 is when you started having uh, the signs of what was going to happen on September 11th, right? Yes. And 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 it's important. You know, I, I'm glad I gave you that segue about how creative Clinton was, President Clinton's administration was. Mm-hmm. They were far more open to 
creative, chaotic solutions and risk, uh, creative risk taking, creative risk taking and intelligence, not for the purpose of warmongering at that point, uh, but because they were applying strategies for uh, that, that were that, that, that where, where military action was not necessary. Okay, creative strategies that where military action was not necessary. Since 9-11, we've seen every problem as requiring as a nail that requires a hammer. And there's there are other ways of dealing with these problems that do not require a military intervention. Absolutely, there are. No, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, Sometimes, you know, the hammer to the nail isn't always the right answer. Most of the time it makes it worse. Unfortunately. So coming up to 9-11, having had a great run with President Clinton from and not everybody likes President Clinton. I'm not asking you to like President Clinton. I do not like Hillary Clinton at all. Um, But uh, but Bill Clinton and had his problems. But on intelligence in the Middle East, he was actually better and I'll show I'll, I'll show you that, but but I was so used to dealing with his way of dealing with it that Bush had the entirely opposite strategy, which was he was manipulating for war. He George Bush had come into power. George Bush the the second, Daddy uh, Baby Bush Bush boy, uh, came into power, promising non-intervention. He would not finish the war in Iraq that his father had started. He was going to have, you know, use diplomacy and peace. And all of us had very high expectations that he would do what he said, because he just had, he'd been campaigning on this point. But in fact, he had a, he was nefarious and deceptive. He had a totally different agenda, which was to start a war with Iraq at any cost, anything that would have, anything possible that could trigger that war. He was going to go finish his dad's war and he was going to show his dad that he could do it. And it turned out, of course, to be the most catastrophic mistake ever in the history of the universe. Uh, It is a pernicious war. It is not going away. Um, it It is not going to get better at this point. I predict there will be a war in Europe now. And a lot of people are starting to see it, but I'm actually going all the way and saying there's going to be a, an all-out war in Europe. Um, and there will be a simultaneous war in Israel, okay? Because as soon as the war – the Europeans are already uh, dissatisfied with Israel's performance on the Palestinian settlements and the territories and the abuses, the human rights – the grotesque human rights abuses of the Israelis against the Palestinians – so Israel, Europe will be tied up in its war with the Arabs in their own country, in their own continent. They will not have the resources to fight a second war. And at, at that moment, uh, the Arabs will attack Israel and Israel will be standing pretty much alone. They will not have the benefit of the United States because – uh, either they will not have Europe and they will mostly be missing support from the United States because I think that we could very really have a war here as well. I think that I think that this is uh, a con- this is a potential conflagration that would be worse than World War One. Okay, wow. I, I really think that we if, if the worst case scenario 
is that we end up with a war in all in, in all three places, and the Arabs will attack Israel, and they'll and and it will take five or six years. But you need to realize the CIA back in the 1980s calculated that Israel that if all the Arab countries ganged up on Israel, they could knock down Israel in 10 years. Meanwhile, Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda segueing into ISIS believe that they could do it in six to seven years. And so they don't expect something to be fast. They, they expect a protracted, violent, terribly, horrifically violent war. But they do believe that if all the Arabs pull together, it, it can be done. And if the United States is discombobulated and fighting its own territorial battles and fighting in Europe, there will be uh, you know three front wars for the United States. Europe will be will be out of the race. That that will make it easier for for the for the Arabs as well. I think I, I really do think that Israel is has has uh, the the hubris of believing they're invincible is going and the bad behavior, the horrific abuses, uh, are making it are, are are escalating the conflict and. Um, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, and that's what we're seeing over and over again. Um, there's resistance on all. You know, I, I'm not saying that. You, you, you might think I'm anti-Israel. You might think I'm pro-Israel. That's not what I'm saying to you. I'm doing giving you an analysis. You might think I'm pro-Europe or I'm anti-Europe. I'm giving you an actual analysis of what's really going to happen. And I'm anti-war, so I don't like it at all. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. Who's doing the killing? I don't care who's doing the dying. I don't like it. <laughs> so I think it's wrong, and I wish that we could uh, <clears throat> pull back from this this cliff. But we are racing towards a cliff, and all the things that we, you know, the 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 George Soros crowd. Uh, people say to me all the time, "How can you oppose immigration of the Arabs and Africans into Europe? That's so mean." And I was like, "No, no, these are this is a clash of civilizations. They don't have the skills to participate and contribute. Europe does not have the 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 money to provide the welfare services that they need and want and demand. Um, they're going to try to. Uh, th there's going to be a collision here." There's, it's inevitable there's going to be a collision. And it may be five years from now, but when it hits, there won't be any way to stop it or any way to turn it back. So right now we need to make better policies and we need to change what we're doing. And we need to stop bombing the Arabs. I'm convinced that if we stop, if we want them to go home, if we want the refugees to go home and, re and rebuild their own societies, we've got to stop blowing them up. And then it will happen. I wonder, is all this stuff that you're talking about, uh, does it kind of stem from that decision we made back in 2011 with the 9-11 the and uh, the events leading up to it? I mean, it, it seems like everything uh, evolves from that day. Yes, it does. 9-11 was the pivotal moment in history, uh, in modern world history, and everything changed. And, and let's let's talk about that, um, because I was one of the very few CIA assets who opposed the war in Iraq very loudly. I was actually uh, – I, I guess I need to take you back to uh, – 
the, the bombing of the USS Cole, which was in October of 2000, one year before 9/11, and most and people just don't know this history. Uh, they they don't know anything about the real facts of what happened. In October of 2000, I was had had been dealing with the Iraqi embassy for since for years. Okay, for years, for six or seven years, and I was started was had been invited to start negotiations to resume the weapons inspections in Iraq. I was planning to make planning sit down meetings with Iraq's ambassador, and for, with the permission of Baghdad and permission of the CIA, that we were going to hand the brand new administration, whether it was Al Gore or George Bush, whoever won the election in November was going to benefit from a brand, from a, 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 a declaration by the Iraqi government, by Saddam's government, that they were inviting the weapons inspectors back into Baghdad. And the new, it would be like the hostage release after uh, Iran-Contra, that they would uh, they, the, the, the brand new administration would start its, its start off its, its, its with, would, would kick off with this great victory, uh, that solving a problem that the previous administration could not figure it out. And, uh, it was a gift for the new administration, whoever they turned out to wow. be. Wow. Okay. Uh, and that, that whole thing kind of started a year before 9-11. Yes, and and here's the thing. What we had was the uh, the Iraqis were trying were always our best source of intelligence on terrorism, and they wanted to show they recognized that they could show devotion to the United States on this very important cause of of a, 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 and re re uh, rejoin the international community and show their good neighborliness to, towards the other Arab countries by opposing terrorism. So in October of 2000, I received a phone call from my Iraqi contact, and he told me that he needed to see me because he had a message from Baghdad. And I, of course, I, I had been a back channel. I had started starting in Libya with my with my with my adventurous risk taking. I had become the CIA and, and defense intelligence asset covering Libya, Iraq, Yemen, Syria, Malaysia, and Egypt. So I had had a huge swath of territory, but primarily I had Libya and Iraq, which were which were two of the most critical nations. And you just didn't get those countries unless you were really very good. They, you know, it's not like today where they would just hand them out to an analyst. They actually, you actually had to be creative and problem solving and be able to contribute something if you were going to be connected to those countries. And I was capable of doing that. I was capable of flipping the, I'm very good at flipping the script. That's what a CIA has, asset has to do. Whatever you throw at me, if you want to know the, the most important qualification for a CIA asset or intelligence asset, whatever you throw at me, I'm going to use it as a weapon or a tool, and I'm going to throw it right back at you. And you will be the sorriest M MFer on the planet that you messed with me. And that's what 
I'm very serious. You'll either be so used like, oh boy, she did it. <laughs> you'll know that I've hit you. You've, you'll know that I gotcha. Uh, and you'll be really glad you're my friend or you'll be really unhappy that you messed with me. <laughs> sure. That's what we do. So I got this. I, I had I had proved myself and I was not incompetent. I was incredibly creative and, and problem solving oriented. So I I received um, this call and they said, come come to the, come to the embassy and, and we have a message for you to give to Washington. And the message was that they had discovered a plan to a, a very complex plan. Inside the country, there they had given sanctuary to someone who was a Saudi national who was dissatisfied with the Saudi government. And they were planning a, a major terrorist attack in Yemen on a U.S. Uh, in one of the ports of Yemen on a U.S. vessel. And they were going to they were going to strike the port in Yemen to attack a U.S. vessel there. And they wanted to do it so that the um, the terrorist group could cross over from Somalia over to Yemen. They could jump the Gulf of the Gulf. They, they could jump across that the, the stretch of, of water. And they could establish a base in Yemen for attacking the Saudi oil fields. So, you know, I have to tell you, I do feel very sorry for Yemeni uh, peoples. But this is a long-term, 20-year agenda item that the uh, the Al-Qaeda forces had to set up a base inside Yemen so they could launch attacks, covert attacks on the Saudi oil fields. So I'm not really surprised that this is happening. Okay. This is what they told us they were going to do in the year 2000. Okay. It's been that long. It's been coming. This is a long-term. Uh, the 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 Arabs are very big on this. They're very good at. Keep, they play the long game. They keep their their agenda is oh, it doesn't waver. It's always the same thing. And once they've got something on their plate, everything they're doing is to try to maneuver into position to get it. But they don't even if they run into an obstacle, they they don't go. They don't give it up. They just find another way to 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 move forward and put it on hold until they can execute it. And that's what they've done. So so anyway, in, in the year 2000, I received notice about this from the Iraqi embassy. This was the first time it ever emerged. And I immediately ran came home to Washington, reported it to the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency. Then I did a quick turnaround and went back to New York. And I knew the ambassador from Yemen. So I gave advance warning to him about what would later become a few days later, a few days later would become the bombing of the USS Cole. And interestingly enough, the USS Cole uh, captain commanders who were on the, the captaining the ship, they had declared shore duty, shore leave for everyone. And they had, so all the, most of the sailors had been taken off the ship. Most of the sailors were not on the ship that night. And the, they had removed the basic protocols, which are in place to stop any other small vessel from approaching 
a U.S. naval vessel. Uh, they're basic things that they do, not only because they're terrorists, but because they're you know, they could they could be dam the, the smaller vessel, helpless vessel could be damaged if it try if 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 the U.S. ship naval ship turns or does you know t does something awkward. The little the tiny little vessel could get caught in their wake and get damaged or destroyed. Sure. So, there's, there's, there are precautions in place, not only for terrorists, but just because you know well-wishers can get into a lot of trouble by approaching a U.S. vessel. So it's just safety matters. They took all those safety protocols down, and the United States and the Yemen, the 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 terrorist group, which is Al Qaeda, rammed into the U.S. vessel, and every and like ten people died. Okay, or something. It was like a very small number of people, but it was all known in advance. It was accepted in it. It was planned in advance. So the United States, the military, the, the Joint Chiefs knew about the attack and they had a greater agenda, which was to get into Yemen. They wanted – they knew – knowing that their ally Saudi Arabia was going to face a long-term strategic attack on uh, Saudi oil fields from this scrabble pork public. The, the Yemeni people are some of the poorest people on the planet. And they live right next door to some of the richest people on the planet. And they don't like it. It was It's a tragedy. It really is a tragedy that Yemen got cut out of everything. Because anyway, so the, the, the United States decided they were going to uh, take advantage of this opportunity to put in uh, a major military presence that would govern Yemen's relations with Saudi Arabia and keep the keep the peace in that area to protect Saudi Arabia. Okay, this is in October of 2000, one year prior to 9/11. So already, what we see is what we would eventually call a false flag attack. Okay, yep. the terrorists intended to have the attack, but the United States flipped the script and made a different outcome that would thwart the agenda of the terrorists. Okay, so. At this point, I was beginning – I was very highly trusted by the Iraqis, by the CIA, and I was being allowed to start negotiations to resume the weapons inspections. And we did this over a period of six months. The, the Iraqis were agreeing to every single thing we wanted, the United States wanted. The CIA could – if the CIA could name it, they would agree immediately. For example, Iraq offered to give us preferential contracts in rebuilding the oil fields, preferential contracts for all new oil exploration and development exclusive contracts to rebuild the pumping stations and pipelines that had been damaged by sanctions uh, a decade of non-use so they were you know they, they, if if you the the, the oil uh, pipelines had rotted out because of non-use and so they had to be replaced so they're like well we'll give the contract to rebuild it to the Americans okay uh, they were the Iraqis were willing to give us preferential contracts for uh, hospital equipment pharmaceuticals um, telecommunications um, farming equipment they offered to purchase one million American manufactured automobiles every year for 10 years because Jeez. Iraq's yes Iraq's entire automobile fleet had you know of, of, of private citizens cars were all 
you, they were they were from like the 1970s and 1980s. You know, these were old, trashed out vehicles that didn't run anymore. They didn't have any parts to to rebuild things. They had to do it all by hand. They had nothing because of the sanctions. So they were willing to give us everything we possibly could have wanted. In addition to that, and here's where it becomes very important to 9-11. In addition to this, the Iraqis had been our best source on anti-terrorism. They were always trying to show us how good they were, how they were so committed to, they hated these jihadists. Saddam was convinced that all the jihadists would eventually become terrorists, trying to tear down secular Islam. And so he wanted to stop Iraq from becoming a religious state like Iran. Uh, Very important. So after the bombing of the USS Cole, the Iraqis protested that they would have done more except they're not allowed to arrest foreign nationals. These were Saudis in Iraq who were planning to kill, who wanted to assassinate the, the, the leadership of the princes, the royal family of, of, of the Saudi countries, of the Saudi state. And so this, we can't do anything about this because you won't let us. And, they, and so the United States, well, you know, you're right. We should let you, you – we want you to allow the FBI or Interpol or Scotland Yard, a recognized Western law enforcement. We demand that in response to the USS Cole, you must allow FBI or Scotland Yard or Interpol to come into Iraq with authorization to make terrorism investigations – interview witnesses, and make arrests on your territory. And in February, very important, very, very important, in February of 2001, Iraq agreed. Baghdad said, yes, you can do that. So here is a dilemma for for George Bush and the warmongers, the neocons. Iraq is agreeing to everything we want. In April of 2001, and they've agreed before we even tell them about 9-11. In April of 2001, I received a phone call from my CIA handler, Richard Fuse, saying, hey, I've got a message for you to take up to New York. Um, I want you to go – I want you to go right away and deliver it to the embassy and ask them for a cable to Baghdad. I said, sure, no problem. I did I did this stuff all the time. I was happy to oblige. I, I knew how to do it. I had all the right contacts in place. When the Iraqis would receive a message from me, they would know that it was going to be fast there was going to be fast action, etc. I was already doing the you know doing the, the weapons inspections talks. Okay, fine, great. And okay. So he, I, I went to his office and he said, well, we've heard that there's going to be a, some kind of terrorist strike on the World Trade Center. We've heard that there's going to be airplane hijackings and possible bombings involved in the attack on the World Trade Center. And we want the Iraqis to tell us everything they know about that attack. If they refuse, if they fail to deliver information to us and it is found out later that they knew about it, we will blow them back to the Stone Age. We will bomb them harder than they've ever been bombed before. And I said, oh, okay. 
Now, not a problem. I'll go up and deliver that message. I know I. That's what I'm for. I, I wasn't even upset about it. I was like, "You better believe it. I'll take it. I'll tell them. I'll tell them." And I know they'll tell Baghdad. So I went up to New York. I delivered the message exactly, and then I and my, the diplomat said, "Very well. We'll be. You know, these are very cooperative people." They said, "We'll be happy to tell the um, the cable Baghdad that this is an important concern and you want information about it." And he said, "No problem." And so I went back to watch Washington D.C. and my CIA handler said, "So, what did the Iraqis do when you threatened them?" So, well, I didn't have to threaten them. There's no reason to threaten them. They were, um, they, 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 they were very. Uh, they're always helpful. And he promised to get the message to Baghdad. He said, "I didn't tell you to be nice to these people," and he used very expressive language that I cannot repeat on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Can I repeat on not even bullet with butterfly wings goes as far as this. <laughs> um, he, he he said he said I you go back and you tell those blankety blankety blank that they had better give us this information right now or else we're going to and he said I want you to tell them the threat originates from the highest levels of government above the very important the highest levels of government above the CIA director and above the secretary of state. Okay. Now that is a direct quote as an asset. I am required to give the message exactly as it is delivered without editing. This is key to my job and my responsibility. I, I must not sugarcoat. I must be, I must be, I'm, I'm, if I'm going to be the messenger, I have to be accurate. Okay, not a question of whether you like the message or not. You are required to be accurate. They had, they ever, both sides have got to know what is accurately say, stated, not what I wish they said, but what they really did say. Okay, so I am told uh, the threat origin, the threat against Baghdad originates above the Secretary of State and the Director of the CIA. That is only three people. It is the President of the United States, George W. Bush, the Vice President of the, of the United States, Richard Cheney, and the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. Okay, and the CIA, and, and realize that I'm 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 an asset for both the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency. So it's only the so it's only those three people, and. Uh, I, I and and it is an absolute accurate statement. We knew in advance in April and May that there was that the World Trade Center was definitely the target of an attack involving airplane hijackings and and possibly airplane bombings. So, the all through the summer of 2001. Now, now here was the, but here was the problem. And the Iraqis were being threatened, but here was the problem. When I went back up to uh, the, the embassy to deliver the threat, the diplomat said, well, oh my goodness, we have already invited the FBI to send a terrorism task force to come into Iraq to conduct investigations. If you believe, so if you're convinced that this attack is a real threat, by all means, we urge you to send the FBI. And the diplomat, who was very high-ranking, said that that he would give instructions that if the FBI 
showed up at the embassy that he should be contacted immediately. His any meeting that he was in should be interrupted, and he would return to the embassy forthwith, without any delays, to get this so that he could personally process the visas for the FBI to go into Baghdad. Because we didn't at at this point, nobody knew when the attack was going to occur. We just knew that it was under discussion. So we we the, the Iraqis were like, absolutely, we'll cooperate with you, and I will cable to Baghdad that you are very demanding on this point. This is actually a very serious threat, and it's imminent. You know, you 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 sent you seem to think that it's that it's it's a it's a very it's a very great danger, and so we will absolutely throw open the welcome gates and we'll help you in every possible way we can. This is in April and May of 2001. Wow. Okay. Months before 9-11. Well, throughout the summer, I went back and immediately told them what, told my CIA handler what the Iraqis had said and come and send in the FBI by all means. Yes, do it. Let's get this done. Get them in there. That is not what George Bush wanted. The Iraqis were cooperating. The Iraqis were 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 giving us all these preferential economic development contracts. The Iraqis were offering uh, to have the terrorism task force. The Iraqis were offering, you know, weapons inspections with no conditions, which showed that the Iraqis knew that they had nothing to hide. And in fact, my conversations with Iraq were always like, "Well, what what's going to happen when the United States comes in and there's no weapons?" And they don't have anything. There's no, there, you know, and I said, well, what we should do, <laughs> this is actually, see, this is black CIA humor for you. <laughs> this is really, I said, what we need to do is buy some weapons from Iran <laughs> and, sh- <laughs> and ship them through Syria. And then at the border, call a press conference <laughs> and say, here, Washington, here are the weapons that you're looking for. Wow. Would you give you a present? <laughs> we have a present for you. Make we're it public. You, we're giving you weapons of mass destruction. So now you can go away. You could say you found weapons and here they are. And let's go and let's move on. Right. So we can, we can get rid of the sanctions. So, um, I, I have a very black sense black sense of humor, but they, yeah, it was just it was it was the, but but throughout the summer of two thousand one, we knew about the nine eleven attack. We absolutely knew about it, and we talked about it all the time. I remember when my next door neighbors were moving into the house next door, and they had their moving van, and I was talking on the phone with my defense intelligence handler, and this was July of 2001, and I said, hey, Paul, imagine if these guys knew that they were, that we're talking about the next terrorist attack on the United States and it's going to be a big one. They'd get right in that van and they'd go back where they came from. <laughs> and, and he was just, and we laughed about it. We didn't laugh about it after nine 11, but before nine 11, it was this again, black humor. We all knew it was coming. We were very, we were highly agitated about it. We were frustrated that, that we were all, we could all, we knew it was like a buzz 
through the intelligence community. Buzz, 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 loud, often, frequent, angry, frustrated, but always buzzing with this intelligence. And I was, you know, my, my CIA and defense intelligence handler handlers insisted repeatedly that I had to go back to Baghdad, ask them one more time, You've got to make sure they understand. We want any fragment of intelligence. Don't try to figure it out yourself. Just tell it to us. Give us a word, a number, something, and we'll figure out what it means ourselves. We'll run that. We'll run it through the the intelligence grindstone. Okay. So so any anything at all. And the Iraqis threw up their hands. They said, "We don't have anything." We have nothing. Okay, now fast forward to August 2nd, 2001. On that day, I was a consultant at a little uh, a little energy company in Silver Spring, Maryland. I was not working from home. And on that day, I that was the day that Robert Mueller had his confirmation, his Senate confirmation hearings to head up the FBI. And I was at that office, not at my house. And I was speaking to my CIA handler and I said, gosh, oh, this guy's such a bad choice to be the FBI director. There's not a single terrorism investigation this guy did not throw. Every time he makes it easy for the politicians and so that they can like – and he said – and Richard, Richard Fuse said, well, what, give me an example. And I said, well, Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City, Timothy McVeigh has been allowed to be portrayed as the lone terrorist with Terry Nichols. And just the two of them did it all by themselves. We all know that's not true. We all know that Terry Nichols was meeting in the Philippines with Abu Sayyaf forces and radical Islamic forces. And um, – that uh, that they were that they were getting financing and training and expertise from these terrorists in the Philippines. Uh, Ramzi Youssef, who orchestrated the first World Trade Center attack, was it was was in hiding in Manila, or or in 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 the Philippines, in in one of these one of these university towns where is in a town where there was an Islamic university. He was hiding in the Philippines and was caught. In, in this Abu Sayyaf region, controlled region. Um, and Terry Nichols was visiting this Abu Sayyaf region. Uh, by the way, you, the Oklahoma, the Las Vegas shooter, what's his name? Pollock, Pollard? Pollock, I think it was. His girlfriend kept traveling back and forth to the Philippines to the same region which is known for its harsh Islamic fundamentalist presence. Really? And has been, yes, and has been connected to where Rams Youssef was, hide, was, was, was part of the time that Rams Youssef was hiding in the Philippines. Same area, same area where Terry Nichols had visited for the, well, while the Oklahoma City bombing was being planned out, all of it. So, just, just saying, okay. Pollock's girlfriend, who did the Las Vegas shooting, was visiting the Philippines, same area as these places, in, including, I mean, inclusive of other places, of course. But this is where the this is where the terrorists are, 
in the Philippines. They do have a very real, real problem. It's not only in the Middle East. Malaysia has a big Islamic problem. Uh, population as well and but the philippines has a problem abu sayyaf okay so i said to i said to robert Mueller is going to throw the you know and, and so my my cia handler said to me on august 2nd he said well what's going to happen if there's no fbi director when this big terrorist attack goes down What's going to happen if if there's if if the FBI is is rudderless, has no chief, when this terrorist attack occurs? And I said, I said to him, Richard, do you think it's that soon? He said, Oh yeah, the attack is imminent. And I said, Oh my God, I the 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 World Trade Center attack is imminent. And I said, Well, God, I better go up to New, I better go up to New York one more time, and ask the Iraqis if they've got any intelligence. Richard Fuse said, No, do not go back to New York. I want you to stay out of there. It's very dangerous. I want you to stay out of there until after the attack is over, because we're expecting some kind of. You know, it, not only will there be airplane hijackings and a strike on the World Trade Center, but somehow there's going to be connected to uh, like a mini nuke. We all thought it was going to be a mini nuke that would bring down the towers. And I said to I had we'd had conversations on the phone talking about this because we did it on the phone wanting the uh, the FBI that they used to listen to every they. They sense they 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 listened in on all on all our conversations, uh, so they they did surveillance of us. So we knew that we said, well, we we want let's have the conversation on the phone so they'll hear it. They'll pick up our chatter on this thing, and so I anyway. So so we had done this, and sure enough, and this is very important. This is why I kept saying that the, the conversation was not at my house. When I went to Japan before the release of my book, I for the first time I told the story about the, the conversation on August 2nd. And when I returned home from Japan, underneath a, a rose quartz book um, – a piece of a, a lar- I have a large piece of rose quartz on my desk, like a book weight, a paperweight, paperweight, and underneath the paperweight was a copy of the a, a clean copy of the Wall Street Journal, dated July thirtieth, two thousand one. My book was published in October of twenty ten. So the, this was a, wor- a, a copy of the Wall Street Journal, nine years old, nine years old. Jeez. And they and it was date it was dated July thirtieth, two thousand one, and it had the address from the little company in Silver Spring, Maryland, where I'd been working as a consultant. Yep. Wow. It's true. Somebody had heard they'd heard my my uh, talk in Japan, and they wanted me to know that. I, ours was not the only team involved in doing this search for 9-11, that somebody – they had been tagging our phone conversations and they had gone into the office where right immediately, you know, not, not a month after, month later, they'd gone into the, con- the, 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 the office immediately when it happened in real time and they grabbed a proof of life 
which is what that is. A newspaper is a proof of life and, and a proof of, of, of it, it, it's, it's actually in intelligence. It's very, it's very worthwhile. You, you would, you, cause what, what did you get? You got the date, you got the address, you got the location, you got all the details, you got the type of newspaper that they're reading, which is the wall sure. street journal. So it's, it's a natural thing to do. And it's, it's, and, but they had done it. And the point was that they had done it and they saved it in my files, uh, from 2000, from July 30th, 2001, all the way to October 2010. <laughs> Jeez, that's diligent. <laughs> yes, that's diligent. And then they heard me in Japan, and they responded by putting by coming to my house, breaking and entering, if you will, and into my house and putting it into a place where right by right by my computer. Under the paperweight, where the, the rose quartz paperweight, where they knew it would not be thrown away, I'd have to actually look at it to, before I could throw it away. And I, when I did, I was like, "Oh my god!" They, <laughs> it was I. My my mind was kind of blown on this one. But on July, but what we had done was on uh, on August second. That was the date of Robert Mueller's nomination. I told my CIA handler I would go straight to New York on August 4th, which was Saturday, and I would come see him on Monday, August 6th. So I know the dates of everything based on the date of this Robert Mueller nomination hearing. Okay. Okay. And on August 6th, I went into my my CIA handler's office, and we uh, talked about strategy of what to do. I had a – that was a Monday. That is the same day that Richard Clark del- hand delivers George Bush a memo, a presidential briefing memo on 9-11 at the Crawford Ranch in Texas. And George Bush said, okay, now you've, you've covered your ass. Now let's go play golf. And that's what they did. They ignored it. But meanwhile, back in Washington, uh, I was I had a meeting with my the same day with my CIA handler. We did not know that that George Bush had just threw our stuff out the window. Uh, We were trying to figure out how to get that message through. I had a phone number for the private office of. Attorney General John Ashcroft, and I had been told that I must never use this phone number ever unless there was one circumstance, and that would be that if there was a terrorist attack or some kind of strike coming and I was not able to reach my CIA or defense intelligence handler who would ordinarily – like the USS Cole would run it up the chain – through our proper channels, and we didn't have to go to the attorney general at all because we had our own private, we had our own direct channels, and our channels went straight to the joint chiefs. By the way, our our channels went straight to the joint chiefs, so we were we were good, uh, and we didn't need to ever use this except on nine eleven, for for nine eleven, and on that day, August eighth, I telephoned. John Ashcroft's office. I said, I am, I identified who I was. I said, we are seeking an emergency broadcast alert across all federal agencies seeking any fragment of intelligence involving any type, any tiny, tiny, tiny bit of intelligence involving airplane hijackings and a strike on the World Trade Center as a known target. We expect the pot, we anticipate the possible use 
of a miniature thermonuclear device. This should be considered the most dangerous, highest priority. And we ask you to run this through all of your agencies. Tell them to send anything to, back to us and report it to the Attorney General's office and the, the Office of Counterterrorism at the Justice Department. Now, this triggers Minneapolis. Minneapolis says, hey, we just got this weird thing coming through, this Musawi fellow, and we think there's something going on here. We want to open his computer. And so they open his computer and electronic devices. And we want a FISA warrant for the, a FISA warrant for this guy. Jeez, they're putting FISA warrants on Donald Trump and all his campaign staff. Here's somebody who actually needs a FISA warrant to open a device with a critical time frame. And the CIA is asking for help. The FBI, the Office of Counterterrorism is trying to give it to them. They've gone to my office where I made the contract with Richard Fuse, they've tracked it down. They're doing – a lot of people are moving right now in the weeks before 9-11. A lot of people are trying to get action and answers. So – but John Ashcroft, apparently I am told that when I telephoned his office, they said – Oh, he, John Ashcroft said, oh, yeah, that's just the CIA. They keep talking about this airplane attack. Just ignore it. Jeez. Just forget about it. Forget about it. And I was like, no. But, but, but the person who I was speaking with at John Ashcroft's office gave me a different phone number for the Office of Counterterrorism at the Justice Department. And that person said, look, I want you to call this number at the Office of Counterterrorism, repeat exactly what you told me. Do it right now. And I will tell them, I will make a phone call and tell them that I gave you the number. And I did, I repeated it, and that's how the whole thing circumvented John Ashcroft. So we, we made an end run around this guy, even though he was very uncooperative. We still got the, the broadcast alert out. So the story about 9-11 that all of you are told is not true even slightly. But I become a major threat because I have negotiated the return of the weapons inspectors. I'm part of the advanced warning system about 9-11. And so when a year later, when the war in Iraq begins to go very badly – in, in 2004, March of 2004, um, when Abu Ghraib first broke, uh, when, when Abu Ghraib first started, excuse me, I was one of the very, very, because of my Iraqi contacts, I was one of the very, very few people who knew it was happening. And I had contacted the security, United Nations Security Council saying that this needed to be – this kind of behavior needed to stop right now, that you were going to – the United States was going to have a – create a deadly blowback and on its human rights violations. But I went to the UN Security Council to do it. The CIA was furious. Furious. Oh, my God. So here we have extreme prejudice all over again. And now they're coming in for the kill. So 30 days. Okay, so so George Bush announced that he was in, in March of 2004, one year after the mission accomplished 
success declaration of success in Iraq. It is now clear that their Iraq was a terrible mistake, and they're be- only beginning to see how bad it really was. So they announced they're going to have a presidential blue ribbon commission on Iraqi pre-war intelligence, headed up by John McCain and Trent Lott. And I'm like, oh, I want to testify. I have a few things to say about this. So I contacted the office of both John McCain and Trent Lott. I have phone records to prove it, okay, because my calls were all wiretapped. So we had the the wiretaps to prove it. What a convenience. (laughs) All of my story. People are like, how did you get the FOIA requests to prove all this stuff? And I was like, oh, but you don't understand. Because I was indicted on the Patriot Act, they submitted 28,000 emails, 8,000 phone calls, all of my faxes. I have a total body of record of every single thing that went over my phone lines. Everything, all my faxes, all my emails, all my phone calls, every single thing. Oh my God. I, I really, I have, I, I have uh, like 10,000 pages of papers. <laughs> All of it documenting what I did, what I did. And so uh, 30 days after I requested to testify, I woke to hear the FBI pounding on my door saying, Susan Lindauer, let us into your house. I was like, what the heck? What? what? You, You have the wrong address. They're like, nope, you are arrested on the Patriot Act. Jeez. It was pretty intense. It was pretty darn scary. So finally, I got to experience what what deep prejudice really means in in real life. (laughs) They arrested me. Uh, For five years, I was held under indictment on the Patriot Act. I managed to I, – I had been warned in advance that, that the last thing my – it turns out that my book Extreme Prejudice begins with a story from – a true story of the last conversation I ever had with my defense intelligence handler. I had no idea that I was never going to see him again or speak to him again. But he was – we were standing in the doorway of his apartment – building and I was on the staircase and he had tears in his eyes and I was like man I love you why we I I, lo- I loved these people so much and he had but he had tears in his eyes and he said Sus-, he said he said hey kid remember he's smiling he said hey kid remember when they come to kill you scream your head off Wow. And he laughed and I laughed and I turned and walked away. And those were the last words he ever spoke to me. I had no idea that I would never see him again, ever. Even when I was under indictment, he refused to speak for me. He refused. He said, he, 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 I'm, I'm told that he informed the FBI that it would be a catastrophically dangerous and that he categorically refused to do it and that if they, they had any brains in their office, they would not allow me to testify either. He said, you are idiots. If you let this thing go to trial, if you let Susan Lindauer speak, if you if you put her on the stand, she's going to blow you out of the – you're going to be blown out, blown to the moon. You think you've got a jihadist problem right now? You've seen, you ain't seen nothing until Susan starts talking. Then you're going to have a real problem. <laughs> So then they wouldn't let me have a trial. 
So I was then locked up on Carswell Air Force Base with no right to a trial or hearing. And I was like, this is not a joke, guys. Okay, it's time for you to come testify. (laughs) And they're like, oh, no, we know what you're going to say. Oh, we know exactly what you're going to say. Never, you're never going to say this out loud in court. And and uh, I was locked up for a year. First, I was held without – first, though, I was held uh, on bail at home. I was on a $500,000 bond, and I was free. And it was very – you know, I was – I knew that I had been silenced. And frankly, to be perfectly honest with you, if you're – for, for anyone who's military out there in the audience, it is understood – as an intelligence responsibility that once soldiers are in the field, the abs- there is an absolute total obligation to secrecy because the, prime, the, 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 the single most important factor is the survival of soldiers on the battlefield, the, the morale of soldiers on the battlefield, recruitment of soldiers on the battlefield, the opinion of the allies who are going to have to deal with the United States. I mean, if the allies had known about this stuff, they wouldn't want to help us. They would abandon the United States. They would have been really mad. You know, the the people at home, everybody was so unhappy with the war. The war was going very badly. But most of all, the soldiers had to stay and fight and win it because until they could declare victory, they were not coming home. So by the time I am sent to jail, so so for the first 18 months, they just want me to stay quiet. They just want me to do not speak, shut your mouth, and you know the rules. And my boyfriend was given a job at the Pentagon with a top secret security clearance and a salary just under six figures. So he was just below radar. And so I had food on the table, but they, but I was being, my reputation was destroyed. So no one would listen to anything I had to say. But then, a, eight, 18 months into this, a, a Colin Powell, Secretary of State, was a real bastard. On September 8th, Colin Powell gave a major television interview with Barbara Walters on 2020. Uh, He said that that no one mid-level from the CIA had come to warn him that the Iraqis, the Iraqi exiles were fabricating intelligence before his big speech at the United Nations. And the problem was I did. I did go to him twice in January of 2003. And I warned him that the Iraqi exiles were notorious liars, that I, I told them that considering Iraq, Baghdad had been trying to get the weapons inspectors into the country since Jan- December of 2000 and January of 2001, that it was highly unlikely that they had any weapons of mass destruction. They were always eager to have the, the inspection start at any moment on very short notice, and that they always said it would be a short conversation, as he already knew. So I said, you, you know, so I I made a, a liar of Colin Powell. 
on September 17th, that was on September 8th, nine days later, on September 17th, the Justice Department rubber stamped that I was not competent to stand trial. And therefore, I could be detained in prison with no trial at all. On September 23rd, 15 days after this this extraordinary interview on 2020 with Colin Powell, I was hauled into court and ambushed in the Southern District of New York, the, the court of Judge Michael Mukasey. And I was told that I must submit to prison. I must surrender to prison on October 3rd, 10 days later, that if I agreed to surrender to prison in 10 days' time, with no advance warning, I would be allowed to have bail and and I'd be, I'd be, but if, but if I, if I, I'd be allowed to keep my bail, but if I demanded a hearing or if I fired my attorney, I would be taken into custody immediately and I would forfeit my bail until the end of the proceedings, which could be forever. And so Mukasey said to me, Judge Mukasey said to me, you got a choice. If you want to keep your bail and go home and have your house and save your house when this is done, you want to have any chance of saving your house, you'll do what we say. Otherwise, you're going to jail right now. My my uncle, who was an attorney who'd flown in from California to help me, he said, Susan, I've never seen so many U.S. Marshals in a single courtroom in my life. The whole, every row was there must have been 50 U.S. Marshals there that literally Judge Mukasey picked up the phone and said, get every U.S. Marshal in the building into this room right now. We have got to show this woman that we mean serious. We're seriously mean business. I was like, oh, my God. And so I surrendered to prison. But I put it into the record that I wanted a hearing and that I was not sacrificing my right to a hearing after my prison sentence. Think about that. Okay. Then I was locked up on Carswell Air Force Base for a year. I was threatened. I was accused of being incompetent. And I, under, under ordinary circumstances, I would only have been held for four months. And then I would have been required to be released because I am not dangerous. I don't pose a threat to myself or anyone else. And therefore, I could go home. So originally, the deal was that I would get a mandatory four-month prison sentence. I was going to serve every day of it. I was not getting out of it. But then I could go home and the charges would be dismissed. I would be I would be declared not competent to stand trial, which would be degrading and humiliating. And it would destroy my credibility so no one would listen to me. But I would go home. Once they got me in prison, they decided that was not a good idea. They decided they wanted to keep me locked up for up to 10 years indefinitely up to 10 years with no right to a trial or hearing to prove I was right and to prove I was telling the truth. And after they agreed to that, they decided that just to make sure that I would be 
silenced. I would be subject to – and this is where it got scary – subject to forcible drugging with Haldol, Ativan, and Prozac, which would have been chemically lobotomized me so that I would be not capable of speaking, writing, letters, reading books, talking to other inmates. I would be drooling um, and shuffling along the walls. Uh, I, most of these women who were in this condition could not bathe themselves. They had to. They could not get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. They had to be carried into the bathroom or had their sheets washed by other inmates in the middle of the night. If they, depending on what the, how they defecated in the bed, this was this wow. was as ugly as you could ever get. And they wanted to do this to me for a minimum of ten years, ten year sentencing, without any trial at all, no trial, no guilty plea. And I have, I'll tell you, I have never been so scared in my life. I was absolutely terrified of what they were trying to do. I was beyond terrified. And I began to fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. They're like, no, no, give us something. You know, accommodate us, accommodate us, help us out. It's like, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, hell no. No, no, no. That is not going to happen. So just because you want to kill me does not mean I'm going to let you do it. But that is why my book is called Extreme Prejudice, because that is exactly what they tried to do to me. It was it was the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my ever experienced in my life. That's incredible. That's incredible. So th this whole thing uh, from, you know, beginning to present uh, has really kind of shaped and molded you towards, you know, fighting uh, against, you know, anti-war agendas and things like that. Is that is that how this all worked out for you, or were you anti-war before nine eleven? I was anti-war all all my life. They 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 were take the the CIA and Defense Intelligence Agency knew that I was anti-war and anti-sanctions. I actually opposed the sanctions on Cuba as well. So okay. I had been, I had been my my college professor, uh, faculty advisor, had been an had been a Marxist expert on on the Cuban sanctions and had been down in Chile during the Pinochet coup against Salvador Allende. So I I had been I had been raised in this in this leftist Marxist ideology that got hijacked by the CIA. <laughs> And it was a really my, my 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 college faculty professor says that he's he's still as amazed at how I turned out, but I'm I'm one of his most fascinating students. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to ask you um, as you were talking and stuff. I, I remembered hearing, and I don't know a ton about it, but um, have you ever heard of the Project for the New American Century? Yes. Now that, those are really those are the neocons. Yes. Yeah, and and so that document is a real document, and it was signed by. Uh, of the people who signed it, 10 of them went on to serve in the Bush administration. And two of them you mentioned earlier with Donald Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. Uh, is this document where it calls for uh, a new Pearl Harbor in order to push their agenda faster, uh, is this something that has just been overlooked or do they – actively suppressed things like this well they actively suppressed it and it was 9-11 was a pearl harbor uh it was exactly a pearl harbor it was a false flag 
did they let it happen or make it happen? I would say to you that they did both. They had to pull back all the protocols like mine for, for voices pushing for action. They had to willfully ignore and deceive the public about those voices. But then they had to – the buildings did not just come down on their own with the wind. Somebody had to go in and wire the buildings with explosives. And they had to promise compensation in advance to Larry Silverstein, whose case – was also heard by whose insurance case for 11 I think it was 11 billion dollars or maybe it was 8 billion dollars or some astronomical scary amount of money was also heard by judge Michael Mukasey so I my literally my attorneys would be going into court with me in tears crying saying your honor we knew about 9-11 I can prove it I'll just get, let me have my witnesses and we'll prove it and my witness my attorney would be my public defender attorney let me add would be followed by Larry Silverstein's Wall Street attorneys you know the best biggest law firm in, in New York City who would say, Your Honor, we have to get money. Poor Larry Silverstein wants money and damages from the from the insurance claim. You gotta give him this money, man. And so so Judge Michael Mukasey was like, shut her up. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure. Shut her up. Shut her up. But but it was it was it was it was but Judge Mukasey in the end had a balancing act because he on one hand he did protect me. When they wanted to forcibly drug me, he stopped them. He refused to let them do it. And I, I had been – he also moved me out of Carswell, Texas, and he I, I, he moved me to the Manhattan Correctional Center. And I was there for the – I had been in Carswell for seven months, and then I moved I, – he transferred me to New York, and he refused to let them send me back while I was waiting for his decision. And he kept me in his in, incarcerated uh, until his very last day on the bench. And the very last action that he ever did as a judge, I will love this man forever until I die. I was literally the very last thing he did. And he said, she's free. She goes home. Wow. And I was like, thank you, God. <laughs> I bet you didn't expect that either. Oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was like waving. I was blowing. I mean, I was like acting incompetent. I was blowing kisses to the judge. <laughs> <laughs> waving at him, you know, just like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I was just like, I was jumping up and down. I was like, thank you, Your Honor, Your Honor. God bless you. Thank you. I was just like, goodbye. Goodbye. In that moment, you would have said, yeah, she's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, with you, you know, right now in 2018, you're doing this show, you have your radio show. Uh, what prevents them from doing anything sinister to you now? Wow. Well, I think they've already done their worst. The thing is that everyone, here's the tragedy. I was right about everything. Yeah. Um, I was right about 9-11. I was right about Iraq. I was right about the consequences of the war. And I feel sorry for them. 
Uh, I don't feel sorry for George Bush. I despise George Bush. John McCain is burning in hell at this moment. He was an evil man. But I'm amazed at how the Democrats particularly are enraptured by John McCain. He's sort of their they're a little hero for them. They've re they've they've reinvented history and as typical of Americans we don't have a really I, – I, I, I'm always kind of blown away how, how you, you think you've just communicated with America and then they haven't listened to a thing you've just said. <laughs> and then they still – oh, but it's John McCain. It's like, yeah, he's one of the bad guys. <laughs> he's one of the bad guys. He supported ISIS. He, he created all these terrible wars, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Ukraine, all of it goes back to John McCain. Um, it's George Bush, too. Yes, it's Hillary Clinton. It is the establishment. And frankly, I love President Trump because he's refusing to play the game with for them. He's refusing to say that Russia, we should be at war with Russia. You know, the Russia, Russia in your head, Russia, Russia in your bed. The little nursery rhyme that we're telling ourselves about how evil and malevolent Russia is. It's craziness. There's nothing to support it. It's like the boogeyman was Saddam Hussein. Then the boogeyman or the boogeyman was Gaddafi. Then the boogeyman was Saddam Hussein. Then the boogeyman was the Ayatollah. The boogeyman is, you know, now Vladimir Putin. And you gotta love the name Vlad. He's Vlad Putin. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like, oh, give us a break. It's a psyop. America needs enemies to keep the defense industry flowing, blood and money. But we're it is it is a uh, we're bankrupting ourselves really. And and the game is is up because the rest of the it's not because of Donald Trump, but the rest of the world is not following in our footsteps anymore. So we really have lost a lot of we've we've squandered our integrity and moral authority with great consequence, I think. It's one of those things where and I've said this before on the show, I, I'm very um I'm just not your typical person when it comes to picking party lines and stuff. I, I very much uh, divorce myself from mainstream media, and I really try to think on my own two feet. And I try not to be manipulated by any one way of thinking. And uh, I, that said, um, and, I, and this isn't like a anybody who's listening and stuff that may not agree with me or Susan, this isn't a, uh, a split at John McCain. I always use this example because of his, of the, the size of the name. Uh, he was serving Arizona for a very long time. And I always question why don't we have term limits for these guys? I mean, th it's, yes. like, it's like saying, here, here. I mean, you're telling me that there's nobody in Arizona that could have done the job at least just as well as he did for that period of time. There wasn't one person that could have rise, rose to the occasion and possibly done it better. And that's why I think that the corruption comes in because these are now po career politicians and they have a lot on the line if they get voted out. And so halfway through their term, they are now recampaigning and they're not doing anything for you, the people they're supposed to be serving. And so I think there's a lot of corruption on many different levels and stuff. And, you know, kind of rewinding here back to the, the Bushes, uh, basically, so with your whole story, uh, I keep getting this mental image in my mind of George Bush reading to elementary kids on 9-11. That was an that that was a, a basically a staged thing. He was acting as if he was surprised. I'm assuming. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think so. I, I think that that this whole thing, they, they, they all knew that the tragedy was, is they, they didn't think it through. They were so blinded by their ideology, the, the, the desire for the project for New American Century, they didn't conceive of the, the emotional devastation of that day. I've, I've, I've been told that George Bush is now a drunk. I don't know if you've heard this, that he is apparently now a raging alcoholic. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's he's become, he's descended into heavy, very, very, very heavy drinking. Um, and he he knows, he's torn, apparently, this is, what I, this is what I'm told, he's tortured by Iraq and, and 9-11 and knowing that he just, he, he had the worst presidency. It was a terrible, 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 terrible presidency. Um, just shocking. The shocking presidency, uh, really scary stuff. And he said that he'd be the last Republican ever elected. And the geo and the establishment is done. You have to. Everybody needs to understand this. The establishment is dead. They are never coming back. They're fighting. This is their last breath. They're 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 fight. This is their last battle. They're going down in November. We've all got to make them go down. We cannot even in the Democrat Party. What you're seeing is that the Democrats who are winning the primaries are knock are progressive Bernie Sanders types who are knocking out the Democrat establishment. But the Democrat establishment and the GOP establishment are 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 at death's door, and they need to be killed off. We have to get rid of them. We have to move into a whole new slate. Yeah, no, I agree. There's, there's definitely needs to be an overhaul on so many different levels when, the, when it comes to this stuff. Uh, Susan, I, I know we talked about doing an hour and a half. And we went over that and I appreciate your time. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and just sharing with us, sharing your experiences and you know where you're coming from. Uh, before we get out of here, would you be able to just share the people one more time where they can find your show and where they can contact you? Sure. My book is Extreme Prejudice, The Terrifying Story of the Patriot Act and the Cover-Ups of 9-11 in Iraq. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, also, you can. I would love to have you, have you guys check out my radio show on Truth Frequency Radio uh, on the internet. And it's The Covert Report at 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Sundays. So thank you very much for having me. I really do. I really appreciate the opportunity to share this. This is this is what re- this are the, it's it's sometimes very difficult for people to hear all of this because they've been conditioned to believe a totally different sort story and a totally different uh, narrative of facts and history. And the whole story you've been told is a total lie from <laughs> from beginning from page one from the first word of the first page. <laughs> The official story is a lie. Yeah. <laughs> all and, fronts. And I, I, I agree with you on a lot of those different things. I mean, uh, my tagline for the show every, every week before the last words that my audience hears me say is, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. And that's yes. exactly <laughs> this. I mean, it, it's it's hard. It's very, very hard to hear things that are uncomfortable to hear that you don't want to believe and go that go against what you've been told on the mass scale of things. And it's very hard to rewire your brain and allow you to get into a position where you mentally are comfortable enough to even explore these ideas. And that's why I always encourage people 
Just take six months of your life. It's not going to kill you. Just take six months of your life, turn off all mainstream media, and just let your mind decompress. And over that six months, you're going to start realizing you start having thoughts and you start thinking a little bit differently than you ever did before. And the only common denominator is that you turned off the manipulation. And so that's the way I view things. That is such a smart idea. I've been doing, I did that several years ago. I still read the, you know, the news on the, on the internet, but I don't watch CNN, Fox. I don't even watch Fox. I don't watch any, any of the, the network news shows. Um, I, I, and, and I would advise everyone to stay away from that poison most of all. Yeah. So, well, I'll tell you what, everybody. Stay away from the mainstream media and go to the covert report on Sundays. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, Thank Susan. You. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. The world is a band.